From the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. On this episode, we've got our election recap. Bruce Melman and David Castagnetti. We're recording this at the end of the week. Votes are still being counted in various House and Senate races. But we'll dive into the election, what it means, and where we're going. Okay, our old buddies, Bruce and David. Bruce and David, welcome back to 14th and G. Thanks, Morning, CR. CR. Okay, so as we are uh, talking here, it's a Friday morning. Election was Tuesday. Uh, since the election, there has been a mass shooting. The Supreme Court Justice of Note <laughs> broke some ribs. The Attorney General was fired. Uh, the, the President uh, banned a reporter from the White House. And the president called out individual Republicans who did not embrace him and blasted them by name. I'm going to start with this question. Does any of that that has happened since the election change what might happen in a lame duck or kind of immediately here? My two cents? No. It's business as usual. You know, if you take a look at the last two years, whatever you're uh, focused on, excited about, uh, upset about, it will change within 24 hours or less. (laughs) <laughs> I, I agree with Bruce on this, actually. It's totally the daily norm. We expect this out of the president. The question ultimately comes, at least in terms of what Congress has to do, is can we go ahead and fund the government? And who does the president cut a deal with uh, moving forward over the next few weeks? I just wonder in that list, the two that I think jump out to me the most are one, firing the attorney general. That, that's going to put a lot of pressure on Democrats to start to start the oversight stuff as fast as possible. And the second piece is, you know, are people who are still sitting in Congress and have to vote for a year-end deal willing to help the president now after he just blasted him? Or are people now more scared of the president and feel like, you know, he's really solidified himself? Yeah, although remember, vis-a-vis the attorney general, that was about as baked and priced into everyone's expectations as there could be. I suppose the swiftness of it, you know, less than 24 hours. Replacement. But but there was endless coverage of the uh, of this uh, the fracture between those ever since Sessions recused himself from uh, from overseeing the Mueller investigation, and it was always a question of when, not if. And I, I think, see, out of me, the big question, and not just only into the lame duck, but as we kind of look into the next Congress too, is I have two questions: Can the president cut a deal with the Democrats, and can the Democrats cut a deal with the president? Those are two very different questions at very different times. All right, so let's back up to Tuesday. Um, Tuesday was a was kind of a wild night, um, and uh, so end of the day, as we sit right now, the House Democrats uh, House flips. Democrats pick up thirty plus seats. It probably looks like it's going to be mid thirty someplace when votes are done getting counted. Um, and in the Senate, um, Republicans pick up a few seats. Um, what's your initial takes? So it, my initial take it, it, it reminds me of when my sons played eight year old baseball. And after the game, everyone got a trophy. 
right? The D's got their big trophy last night, or Tuesday night, excuse me, uh, won some big governor's races in the Midwest, won house seats in places like Oklahoma and Georgia, places that you would never anticipate Democrats winning. They picked up about 350 state legis- legislature, legislative seats uh, as well. It was a really big night for them. On the other side, the Republican trophy, as you touched on, was they won a bunch of, uh, defeated a bunch of Democratic incumbent senators. No surprise, I think, from where we started the year, but that's a big coup for them. And they won, or it appears that they've won the Florida governor's seat as well. So I think, you know, to me, everyone has their trophy, everyone has their talking points, but it clearly was a big night for the House Democrats and a big night for the for the governors uh, as well, and especially the victory in Kansas. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. Uh, it's a, a split decision that reflects a divided nation. And in suburbs, Democrats uh, have uh, the electorate that chose Mrs. Clinton choosing Democrats. And in rural areas and square states, you had the electorate that picked Donald Trump voting for Republicans. Uh, in a lot of ways, I found what's weird about this recent election, I had less certainty about what was going to happen than most prior elections and less surprise when the conventional wisdom proved right. Yeah, yeah that's really a good point. Uh, the conventional wisdom definitely played out this time. Uh, pollsters actually deserve some credit this cycle. They actually kind of nailed it. Uh, more or less. Castagnetti praising up. pollsters would all, like the only thing weirder would be if you were talking about the Yankees did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Pollsters were right this time. I give people credit when credit is due, Bruce. You know that. The, the other thing I'd say is um, on, Still the, waiting. <laughs> on the House front, it appears that the basically the House races they won, you know, we were talking about surprises. There really, there really weren't, right? I mean, I think if, if someone at the DCCC were to rank your, your potential seats to pick up, these 30-something would certainly be on that list in the first 30-something. You know, yeah. maybe there's the occasional Oklahoma seat was a little bit funky, and there's a couple other funky ones, but there wasn't really any crazy um, seats uh, on that front. And I have, I went into election night expecting to be surprised like you and really found that I wasn't. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that the other piece that we really haven't touched on, it clearly was the era of the woman as well. And as you look at the number of, of Democratic uh, women who were elected, that number is huge. And when you look at kind of the profile of them, ranging from uh, uh, Cortez in New York to Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan, it's quite a spectrum of kind of where they stand on the issues as well. So it's not just a, a kind of an herbal tea party that took place within the House Democratic Caucus. There were definitely a bunch of moderates that were elected as well. Yeah, if I can uh, amplify on women's political power is growing. As candidates, there were 529 women who filed to run for House or Senate. The previous record was 334. As donors, women donated in what the F. EC can track $385 million. Uh, The previous record was a presidential year, last time $285 million. We're going to have at least 117 women in the House and the Senate. The previous record, last Congress, was 107. Uh, And even as voters, when you take a look in the 68 U.S. congressional districts, which which have the highest percentage of women who are college grads, uh, a third of them went for Republicans last election, only 13% of them went for Republicans this election. A lot of people have made this, um, 
observation about the suburban and urban divide. I wonder if Democrats everywhere, if it wouldn't be smart for them to go and say, we want nonpartisan redistricting reform everywhere in the country, because Democrats are winning basically places where people live um, and losing relatively badly in places that less people live. It feels to me like that there's just a huge break between if you're near if you're near a subway or a bus line or, a, you know, whatever else happens in cities, right, um, you're probably going to vote Democrat these days. Yeah, some, some of that demographers have found is called self-sorting. It's just where people choose to live. Um, but as a raw matter for the success of our democracy, the, the, the inverse is what freaks me out uh, with the observation that in about two decades, two-thirds of the senators will be selected by one-third of the population. And that's the way the founders built the system, so it's not like you can change it with a law. But it's going to be very difficult to see how a majority of people in the country keep getting rolled by a system that disfavors numbers and favors geography. Yeah, and I think Republicans, uh, I think Democrats obviously have a huge problem on a presidential level because you have to win some of these rural states, something like in Iowa or whatever else. But but I also think Republicans have a huge problem on growth, right? If you're losing women uh, minorities, people who live in cities, right? You're, you're just going to run out of people. And, and I think that's exactly it. If you look, there was a, a great piece by a publication called City Lab um, that basically redefines suburbs. Um, and as you look at a suburb, there's a densely populated suburb, which would be like the immediate ones right outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, Democrats control 80% of those seats. They define a sparsely uh, a sparse suburb, uh, which would be something like Illinois, uh, the old Roscombe seat in Illinois. Democrats control 60% of those. So as you start to look at where the voters come from in the Democratic Party, they're definitely changing and kind of moving out to the exurbs, I guess, would be a, an old way to define it. Um, so, and you're right, if you think about nationally where we're going as a country, remember by 2040, we will be a majority-minority country. So you do see where the Democrats are better positioned in terms of, of elections. But again, the Electoral College is a little bit of a different take. Okay, so let's move into, to, uh, let's assume we pay the bills. And maybe that's a big assumption. And let's assume that we don't shut down the government or we shut down Including the government. the bill for a big wall? Yeah. <laughs> what, you know, let's, let's, but let's take a look at what the next Congress might look like. So what's a, what's a Republican Senate agenda look like? What's a Democratic House agenda look like? And what's the president want to get done? And Bruce, maybe why don't I go with you first? Uh, sure. It's, uh, first and foremost, the Republican Senate agenda is uh, continuing to confirm judges, continuing to confirm nominees, um, to, uh, and to uh, work closely with the administration on its priorities, particularly uh, around um, border security and around uh, the implementation of things such as tax reform uh, and, then, uh, and then on trade. Um, the Dem House is more interesting, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to defer to my colleague who's far closer <laughs> to those with hair on fire. You know, it seems like the Dems are going to move in four areas at the same time. They're going to have aggressive oversight both of the administration and of industry. They're going to try to rally their base, and David can talk to that better. They're going to try to stop the president, although without the Senate, the only way to stop him is just endless oversight. If every week you call the head of the EPA in for an oversight hearing in a different committee, you probably slow down what they get done. 
Nobody's ever tried that, and I hope that's kind of the nuclear option of oversight. I hope we don't go there, but I think that's a risk. And then, and I'll let David talk about this because I know he loves deals with the administration, but there are some opportunities for deals, and I think the Senate uh, will will follow the White House's lead on the potential to cut some deals. The Democrats, if you notice, their their kind of their messaging points were a lot about infrastructure, a lot about drug pricing, healthcare generally, all places where in theory they could work with the administration to get things done. And again, I still come back to my question, can the president cut a deal with the Democrats? Can the Democrats cut a deal with the president? There's a there's a challenge there uh, that, that takes place. I, I do think that infrastructure seems like the very logical place. And if I was the Dem- House Democrats at this point, I would try to move an infrastructure bill and a drug pricing bill as quickly as I could. Because again, we as Democrats actually believe government has a role and let's redefine what infrastructure is. Let's bring broadband into it. Let's bring building new schools. Let's put roads and bridges that we always talk about. I think that those are the important things. I think in terms of Bruce's point, in terms of rallying the base, you know, I think I would look at some ethics reform uh, coming down the pipeline. I think that's really important to Democrats. There is, when, when you look at uh, some exit polling by McInturf, um, the, the, the ethics, the, the drain the swamp theory still is alive and well amongst voters and would be a very good place for Democrats to go. Uh, as well. So you can see various pieces. uh, And if they decide to take the president on on the immigration fight and the wall, do they pass some kind of immigration bill uh, that would be similar to one that the Senate passed a number of years ago? Is that doable or not? And again, the dynamic of the Senate is completely different uh, as we as we get there. And 2020 has a very different map from Democrats for Democrats than it did in this cycle, right? A lot more lefties who are up in 2020 versus in uh, uh, this cycle where it was much more of the moderates. Yeah, and uh, the Senate also changes, I suspect, with everybody deciding they want to run for president. Correct. Uh, <laughs> which certainly changes, uh, <laughs> it certainly changes things a little bit as well. Bruce, how does the president deal with both oversight and, and, a, and a Democratic House? Because I could see this going two ways. He either goes to battle stations, which is kind of where I think he goes, or he actually cuts deals on things. You know, if he can get a infrastructure bill that he can take credit for and name every road the Trump road and the Trump highway, like that would make sense to him. But he's going to be conflicted on that front because they're going to be coming after things like his personal tax records and talking about where what roles his family had and in government and in campaigns and things like that. Yeah, so so you're right. Uh, to date, oversight of the administration has been led by Republicans and has been um, less robust than some think uh, perhaps it could have been and certainly less robust than it will be. Um, look, the president's a fighter. If there's one thing we know about the guy is he is the uh, most aggressive counterpuncher in the history of politics, if not boxing for that matter. Um, it's going to be World War III. Some of it, so many of the things I find when you think about the Trump administration, we saw uh, foreshadowed in the Clinton era. You know, in the Clinton era, the, that president uh, had a lot of uh, allegations about personal conduct and personal financial conduct and personal transgressions. You know, ultimately, the Democratic senators completely rallied around him. It was turned into a partisan thing. They invented the 24-hour uh, campaign war room, and it was all about uh, vilify your uh, those who are coming after you, attack your opponents, and counterpunch. The Clinton playbook is there. It's to be read. It worked for Bill Clinton, such as it was. Um, I think that's what you're going to see from the Trump administration. 
I think the, the piece on this, though, too, is, is what does Mueller do? And is there something there with Mueller that changes the dynamic within the Republican Party, or not so much even within the Republican Party, but within Republican elected officials who have to be more aggressive because of the potentially the state of the country and was there collusion or not collusion with the Russians? That's an important piece of the puzzle that we just don't know the answer to at this time. Yeah, and I'm also interested to see uh, on the Republican world. Uh, Senator Romney, does he take up uh, the Senator Flake, Senator Corker role of kind of um, needling the president a bit? It wouldn't surprise me too much. Um, the president kind of needled him uh, yeah. in public <laughs> yeah, and fairness. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And not just at the debates. <laughs> so there's a few other things. Uh, we'll talk about some, some more sexy stuff in a minute, but let's talk about meat and potatoes. If I'm a business, why don't I just say, hey, man, like I know what's going to happen. Democrats are going to do oversight. Republicans are going to scream about it and do judges, and none of it's going to affect me. Washington is going to go to gridlock, and I don't really need to pay attention here. It feels to me like uh, uh, something that would be relatively easy to think through, but probably may not be right. Yeah, you can ignore Washington at your own peril. Um, having worked as a firm and lived through uh, the uh, the various takeovers when the Democrats took over the House and the Senate in 2007, uh, when Republicans took over the House in 2010 and uh, starting in 2011, and in the election of 2014 taking over the Senate, uh, there are two things to remember. First, a whole lot got done and will continue to get done. Folks underappreciate how many bipartisan accomplishments the most recent Congress has had has, and has enjoyed. We've worked on so many of them. We know it uh, because that's just not what's on cable TV. That's not what the outrage du jour is. That's not what people are fighting about. But from um, the uh, SESTA to the opioid legislation to a five-year FAA modernization to the Dodd-Frank Fix Music Modernization Act, uh, fixing the, the Water Resources Development Act, um, there were a lot of really important to businesses' bottom lines outcomes of Congress that only happened because folks were engaged, because they were bipartisan, and because they didn't accept the narrative that, oh gosh, it'll be gridlock. It will absolutely be gridlock if your measure of success is getting your message through uh, Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow. But if you want to get legislation passed, if you want to not be the target of uh, oversight that uh, that um, you know causes you to have to fire your CEO or to uh, meaningfully uh, realign your businesses. Uh, if you're worried about your supply chains as trade proceeds unrelated to the Hill, there is a whole lot happening in the next two years in Washington, and you can either be at the table or on the menu. And so the other question I have specifically about a, uh, something a lot of our clients and a lot of other folks care about, you have the USMCA, which is out there, which is the NAFTA 2.0 trade deal. Um, how in the world does that get passed? At some point, the president will have to move, have to withdraw from the agreement. Pull the pin. And send a bill up to the Hill to see where they can get. I mean, it's, it's, it's been interesting in watching trade deals uh, in the past, which we've been part of for a very long time. This is the first time I've seen the labor unions relatively quiet about agreements. I'm not quite sure exactly where they're going to end up. Um, in the Wall Street Journal uh, this morning, Lori Wallach had a very interesting comment about praising uh, Ambassador Lighthizer. You don't see that too often. Um, so there, maybe there's a different dynamic. Maybe something can come together. But I think, you know, it, it'll be a definitely an interesting challenge that uh, Mrs. Pelosi and Mr. Neal will have to deal with uh, moving forward. 
Yeah, it seems to me that, man, uh, functionally pulling the pin and saying the Democrats in the House in particular have to pick between no NAFTA deal or a new NAFTA deal cut by Trump. Oh, man, <laughs> that's yeah, a tough one. That's a, that's a real tough call. <laughs> uh, I totally agree. And if you look at places like the Senate where Sherrod Brown basically hugged it out with the president's protectionist um, theories and won um, in Ohio, you know, makes it it makes it a tougher, tougher putt. So we mentioned this, we glossed over it. And one other thing I just want to chat about, um, oversight of tech companies, things like that. That's a place that feels to me that both that both the president and Democrats want to go do some work. If I'm Google, Facebook, Amazon, name your, name your company, this is not going to be a fun time, I don't think. It's beyond, I, just to jump in for a second, Bruce, I, it, it, it's, it's beyond the president and the Democrats. It's also many Senate Republicans as well agree uh, that something has to be done in this space. And you've seen movement by companies like Apple and Microsoft already kind of driving towards the European regulations, just kind of saying, hey, this is kind of what we're going to deal with in place. No, look, I agree very much. Uh, it is an area where we expect collaboration between the administration, Republicans in the Senate, Democrats in the House. Um, tech is great. It powers the economy, but the biggest economic players always face growing scrutiny and oversight in areas of consumer protection, most significantly privacy, in areas of market domination, particularly antitrust. Google, Facebook, and Amazon uh, are going to find themselves very much of an, on an island. Now it's, you know, it's Branson-like island. It's a really nice island <laughs> to be on. Um, at the same time, uh, they, have, uh, they have challenges at the federal and state level in the U.S. and abroad uh, from uh, traditional enemies of tech and from other tech players, like David mentioned, who, who are no longer their allies, from lawmakers and regulators. The, the good news for those companies is they've got a lot of resources to work with to defend themselves. You know, it, it's um, the way uh, Amazon's talking these days. They're going uh, pure Oprah Winfrey on HQs. You get an HQ and you get an HQ. You know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty good way to defend yourself. This is the sexy question because nobody really knows what's happening here. But so leadership in both sides of uh, the leadership in the in the House in particular is particularly sexy just because there seems to be a bunch of, of discussion about it. As of right now, nobody's running against Mrs. Pelosi. Nobody's running against Mr. Hoyer. Uh, and down as you get further down, there's a little bit of some skirmishes. But, you know, there's there's been uh, a couple dozen folks in the. Uh, that that ran for office uh, and won, um, as well as some folks on the Hill who've said that, you know, it's time for new leadership, some version of it's time for new leadership, or I don't want to vote for Nancy Pelosi. And on the Republican side, uh, there's a little bit of a of a discussion of in the minority, is it Mr. McCarthy? Uh, are there others? It seems like uh, um, Mrs. Cheney, Congresswoman Cheney is now uh, making a, a move for leadership. What's going to happen? You know, it's funny. Uh, the way you just framed that, CR, nobody has announced they're running against Mrs. Pelosi, but that's going to be a war. Everybody has announced they're running against McCarthy, yet he's going to win. Yeah, it's, a, it's a really an interesting thing. Yeah. Two things I would say. One is I never underestimate Mrs. Pelosi's ability to count votes. She is the ultimate vote counter and knows how to get to where she needs to get to. The, the question I really struggle with is, remember, most of these new folks who were coming in have run as anti-establishment candidates, not just voting against Mrs. Pelosi. But so as we discuss, okay, what do the new freshmen want? Do they want a seat on Ways and Means? Do they want to sit at leadership? 
These folks are anti-establishment. They may want none of that. And what are they actually going to ask for at the end of the day? It could be very different. Is it going to be a Medicare for all vote that they're going to want? Is it a, an impeachment vote that they're going to want? I, I, we don't know the answer to that question yet. And it'll be interesting to watch that play out over the next couple of weeks. Well, uh, one thing I'll just say, and we can wrap up with this, is, is you know, it, it always surprises me in these elections um, how much the narrative changes at the end, right? I think at the beginning of election night, I think Democrats thought like, oh, man, it's not going to be a great night. Florida's not going great and whatever else. And now we're talking four days later, three days later, and the Senate race in Arizona has flipped due to recount, um, you know, flipped uh, who's in the lead. I don't know who's going to win it. And basically every couple of hours, we're getting a trickle of another win. Um, my version of this one, when I, was, when I did this in 2010, was you lose a bunch of seats on election day, and then there's like a drip, drip, drip of losing seats for like the next three weeks. So I think there's still a handful of House seats. There's probably, what, three Senate seats, four Senate seats that are out there, a couple governor's races. So it's interesting. Elections these days, election day almost is, is only one part of the, of the matter, and it kind of continues to go on. Got to go back to when Al Franken originally won, and it took him till February or March to seat him. Um, that's a big. It's a big deal. We're probably going to have that. Manuf- manufacturing votes in Minnesota takes a while. <laughs> <laughs> Even the great Mark Elias is not you know, that automatic. <laughs> All right, David and Bruce, thanks for coming into 14th and G. Thank thanks, you. See ya. As usual, it's always great to have Bruce and David on the pod. If you're looking for me, my email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. Until next time, we'll be sitting right here, the intersection of business and policy, right here at 14th and G.